It is July. We made it. It's the second half of 2023. Does feel like we're turning the page a bit in our collective story. The pandemic is in our rearview mirror, at least through the summer. Who knows what a winter and fall of flu season will be like. But that's a good thing. The Supreme Court keeps doing things that, as an education podcast, we have to pay attention to with affirmative action and student loan forgiveness being rebuked by the Roberts Court. So we will be talking about some legal rulings, their impact on education, what that might mean, setting up for future trends. We are absolutely going to talk AI because it's the summer of 2023. I am fresh off of the International Society for Technology and Education, ISTE Live conference in Philadelphia. I'll have some thoughts on my experiences down there, what that might mean for the upcoming academic year. It was an interesting time to check into K-12 technology and ed tech, how that's relating back to what's going on in classrooms across the U.S. And last but not least, it is Certainly a time where the sustainability and climate challenges that we're all facing is much more front and center. Looks like the smoke is clearing a bit here in the Northeast, but it is a time where the impact on how we live and experience our educational environments is very much top of mind for me as I'm recording this. We'll kick off the summer. I'll be joined by a few of our virtual co-hosts in today's conversation. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is Trending in Education. We're going to talk a bit about affirmative action. The Supreme Court ruling just came down Within a day or so of me recording this episode, it's something that we can't ignore as a trend spotting show, as a show that's been looking at equity and social justice and some of the emerging trends and counter trends, backlashes and challenging culture wars that are happening around race, whether we truly can be colorblind or not. I'm not alone in this conversation. Today, I do have. My virtual co-host, Ruth, rejoining me for the show. It's been a little while since you've been on. Ruth, welcome back to Trending in Education. Thanks, Mike. Always a pleasure to be here. Although the story here is a tough one when it comes to affirmative action. Yes. I did read a really interesting article on Slate by Dahlia Lithwick, which we'll be including in the show notes, which talks about how Justices Sotomayor and Ketanji Brown-Jackson both wrote really scathing critiques of the majority decision here, which removes the ability to do race-conscious admissions policies at, in this case, University of North Carolina and at Harvard. It is a sobering decision, I think, in that Many of us believe that progress has been made in terms of broadening the types of people who get access to college. The more perspectives, the more backgrounds you can get represented in your space elevates the collective ability to innovate, to work together, to uncover things that might have been hidden otherwise. I thought Justice Jackson, who is also the same age as me and is our 
most recent appointment, I thought her critiques, along with what Dahlia Lithwick included in her quote of Anita Hill, who stated that sometimes when you say the sky is falling and someone tells you it's not falling at all, there's a distinct chance that the two of you simply live under a different sky. And that's the theme really throughout Dahlia's article. To quote Justice Jackson's dissent, she stated, with let them eat cake obliviousness on Thursday, the majority pulls the ripcord and announces colorblindness for all by legal fiat. But deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life. I think that pretty much sums it up. I would expect a similar backlash to this as there was to the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. We are living in difficult political times, very polarized culture. And then at the same time, that is impinging on education, on higher education, on how we think about making hiring decisions and opening up pathways to career and life success, themes and topics that come up a lot on this podcast. There's more to talk about. We'll be bringing in others down the road to continue to explore these topics, but it's certainly a theme, an area that we need to shine a spotlight on. And then looking ahead, I would expect this to be a place where more political issues related to higher education, especially, will begin to bubble up as this is viewed as a big victory among conservatives and folks on the right, and then as a real outrage and something to mobilize and activate against, also explore legislative options and also policies at the university level. I would expect a lot of that to continue. I'd love to get a little bit of your perspective on this, Ruth, as we gear up for a summer of conversations about affirmative action. It's something we'll continue to monitor. As we've seen with your coverage of the ongoing saga at New College of Florida, culture wars are being waged on our campuses. This will continue on that theme. That's a great point, Ruth. Be on the lookout for our Palm Court podcast launching very shortly in July. Hopefully fans of New College, fans of this show who want to understand more what's going on there, check out the Palm Court podcast coming soon to an RSS feed near you. It does remind me very much of my conversation with Eric Schickler, who's a professor of political science at the University of California, Berkeley. Eric is working on a book about polarization in higher education with some serious concerns that we are heading into a world where there are two different approaches to public higher education in the U.S., one for red states, one for blue states. It's not necessarily exactly in line with what's going on here, but I would expect that policies at the state and university level will continue to be swayed by the broader political climate, particularly within those states, so that you could see more red states adopting more stringent colorblindness, while more blue-leaning states will begin to legislate in aspects to their policy that are more open to minorities and traditionally underserved populations. Let's listen now to a little bit of Eric Schickler, professor at Cal Berkeley, talking about polarization in higher education, how that trend has been emerging, and how it's something for us to keep an eye on. On the broad level, I'm worried. What I worry most about is having two separate public higher ed systems, one in blue states 
you know, where tenure is secure. Funding always still remains questionable, but tenure is secure. You know, there's a lot of promotion of diversity, both demographically, but also intellectually. But then at the same time, you have red states in which tenure is under challenge, in which, you know, women, faculty, for example, and students are reluctant to go because of lack of secure reproductive rights, where, you know, marginalized communities don't feel particularly welcome. And so you then end up with just these two very different systems. And I think that, you know, if we want to think about this as one country, that's a real problem. And, you know, I think it starts with the K to 12, obviously, where we've already seen a lot of political interference with what books are in libraries and so on increasingly. But I think it's spreading to higher ed. And, you know, as an academic, I, you know, when I think about my students going out on the job market, you know, you're starting to hear students worry about, well, if I get this job, if my one job is teaching at a public university, in particular in one of these states, say Florida, they are thinking about, well, will I get in trouble for what I say? How secure is my job going to be? Am I going to be looking over my shoulder when I put my syllabus together? And so, you know, I I just think that's going to have a really bad effect. And I think the important thing, you know, for people who are outsiders to academia, remember is as a professor, you routinely put things on your syllabus that you disagree with. You think is, you just don't think is right in some fundamental way, but you put it on there because you want your students to engage with it and thinking hard about it, thinking about how to challenge it will improve their minds. Now, maybe you don't want to put something on there, even with that purpose in mind, if you worry that somebody's going to point to that and say, I can't believe he made them read this, which says this thing that I think is terrible. And then maybe you agree that thing happened to be terrible, but you still thought it was important for students to engage with it. And think about why it's terrible. And now you're not going to do that because somebody could post that syllabus on the internet, cause a social media sensation and pressure you to be dismissed. And so I just think that's a kind of crazy world to live in, not one that's going to promote the best education for students. And so, I mean, to be honest, I worry about this. I think the main hope would be, if I think about it, that over time, parents who maybe themselves lean conservative, but will understand that this isn't helping their own kids' education, their own kids' life chances, then maybe that puts pressure on politicians. Maybe politicians realize that to get a vibrant innovation-based economy, you need creative people who are learning lots of things and we need to attract them to our states and communities, pull us back from this brink. But to be honest, I'm not feeling especially optimistic at the moment. Great stuff there from fellow New College of Florida alum, Eric Schickler, on polarization in higher education. You can hear more of that and conversations like that on the Palm Court podcast feed coming shortly. One more note on affirmative action before we bring Nancy in and start talking about AI is to understand where in higher ed we're focusing when we're looking at affirmative action. It's really about getting access to the quote-unquote elite, or as Akil Bello likes to say, the most rejective rather than selective universities out there, where the lowest percentages of folks get in, particularly the lowest percentages of black and brown and also white students are being admitted, particularly those from 
less socioeconomically advantaged backgrounds and schools. That's really where the affirmative action has been focused. How do we get into those elite universities? When you look at who's actually educating the vast majority of students in our country, it's not those elite universities. It's more the larger, less selective, more inclusive universities, bigger state schools, community colleges. How do we ensure that folks believe in the promise of that education, that it's delivered to them in a cost-effective way? This is also where the rebuke of student loan forgiveness also comes into play. How do we get folks an affordable education, an affordable pathway to social mobility and a good job, a good career prospect for themselves and their family without taking on too much debt? That's really the challenge that's out there for higher ed. And it's likely to be a challenge that's not addressed by the Harvards and UNCs and Dukes. It's going to be addressed more at CUNYs and SUNYs and big state colleges in California, in Texas, around the country. That's really where the most folks are going to get the education and the upskilling that they need. And then the real challenge to higher ed, frankly, is that there'll be other pathways emerging that will also open up access to career paths and to future prospects that are better, perhaps, than they would be otherwise. This is where I would see the influence of big tech, of big education companies coming in to provide pathways, to provide alternatives that grant access to a better livelihood, to a better career path. That'll be where we're looking in addition to access and the shifts that happen and admissions policies. I would say legacy admissions are certainly going to come under scrutiny in light of this decision. So it'll be the summer of affirmative action, the summer of polarization on campus, trends that we'll continue to watch and cover in new and interesting ways. We're also going to want to get into the summer of AI as we do that. In addition to Ruth, we do have another co-host who's gotten some love lately. This is Nancy. Nancy, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. Happy to be back. AI is everywhere these days. I hear you just spent some time with AI in Philadelphia, and we're not talking about practice. That is true, Nancy. I did have an interesting few days earlier this week at the International Society for Technology and Education Conference, ISTE Live, in Philadelphia. There was a lot of talk about artificial intelligence or AI in Philadelphia. I hadn't actually made the 76ers connection until you just mentioned practice. Talk to me about practice. By the way, if you do enjoy Allen Iverson practice references, be sure to check out Running It Back, our Lessons Learned from Sports podcast available wherever you listen to pods. This is not about Allen Iverson. This is not about practice, at least in the way he was talking about it. What ISTE was very much about was big tech and technologies influence in education. And it was interesting for me to go there and see not just ed tech companies, but also big tech companies who are also doing education as part of their strategy. So the main sponsors of ISTE were Google Education and Microsoft Education. A lot of the other bigger platforms and hardware companies were also there, whether it's Dell or CDW, Zoom or Cisco a veritable who's who in Silicon Valley. And each of those big companies typically has an education arm. They do 
some institutional education sales into K-12, and everyone just descended into Philadelphia to talk about what technology trends are out there, what do people need to be using, and the Expo Hall was pretty remarkable in its scale at the Pennsylvania Convention Center, my first time there in Philadelphia, and got a lot out of it. Uh, I will shout out a few folks. I would shout out Ed Surge and Jeff Young, who does a nice job with Ed Surge's podcast. I did see them record an episode there, which I thought was real interesting. Jeff interviewed Kareem Edward, who's an assistant professor at Drexel. He's also a creative producer of Work It Out Wombats, which is on PBS. It's a new series that I will admit my four-year-old has watched. And Kareem had some really interesting perspective on building inclusivity into children's programming. There was an overall sense of media savvy, media awareness that I was, in fact, pleased to see. But I didn't necessarily see as much criticality in the looks at technology writ large. I also witnessed my first esports match, which was certainly eye opening, and I did feel uh, a bit out of touch as I was trying to keep up with the League of Legends battle between the state champions of Pennsylvania and New Jersey. There was shoutcasting happening at the time, where there were a couple of students and one teacher there who were narrating and talking about what was happening, breaking down the strategy in real time a veritable Manning cast of esports activity there on the main stage in Philadelphia. All those things were certainly eye-opening to me, but I did feel a sense of hollowness. I did feel a sense of hunger for humanity. This is what brings me back to the importance of SEL. I get social emotional, maybe, when I think about this is that in response to these AI waves, where will we lean in more to our humanity? I am starting to read a book called Wisdom Factories, AI Games and the Education of a Modern Worker by Dr. Tim Daisy out of MIT. He makes a pretty compelling argument that we're going to need to get better at being humans and what humans are most well-suited to is accumulating wisdom and perspective rather than try to be filled with information. So rather than treating our schools like information factories, he's saying turn them into wisdom factories, which I think has some interesting implications. I'm working through that. I'm looking forward to talking to him about that. But that certainly informed my visit to Philadelphia, as did the work that David Adams and folks at the Urban Assembly are doing in K-12 around spreading the good word about social-emotional learning. And I would say increasingly there will be some perspective towards the future of work that starts to think about, well, if we could offload these things to non-human intelligences, what would the humans be able to bring to the conversation? The closing keynote down at ISTE this year was an interview with Kevin Roos, who is a technology columnist for the New York Times. He wrote a book called Future Proof, which I'm about to crack open. And he's also a podcaster who hosts a podcast called Hard Fork with Casey Newton about the wild frontier of technology, which very much includes artificial intelligence. And it was interesting to get his takes on where that world is heading. Interestingly, he did gravitate back to social emotional learning for places where 
AI will ultimately be able to help with our loneliness crisis and our well-being crises, although not without some risk and perhaps some hiccups along the way. Overall, I did come away with some newfound respect for the scope of the educational technology universe, particularly in K-12. And it did open up my thinking in some new ways around the influence of big tech on the future of education and how some of those models are perhaps leading educators into technology-driven decisions as opposed to technology-enabled ones. In some ways, some of this technology does look like a solution in search of a problem. However, when you come back to AI, I do think there are real problems around teachers' time. As I've mentioned, you know, the challenges around grading papers and other work that's done in an LMS. Could some of that be automated? Could some of that be made more efficient over time? Sure. And you see a lot of that really through the work that's being done at ISTE. And then assuming that time is freed up, what can the humans focus on? What can they get better at? And that's where I think we're all going to have to lean into some of our emotional capabilities. I was really happy that in addition to character, creativity, collaboration, communication, critical thinking. Kevin brought up another C in the panoply of Cs that are human skills nowadays, durable skills. He talked about compassion. And I think there is a real challenge right now to thinking compassionately, thinking with empathy. Shout out to Terry Givens, author of Radical Empathy. He's been on the show many times. How do we teach at an early age, again, as a parent of a four-year-old, how do we teach empathy? How do we teach consideration, teach openness? And that, to me, comes full circle back to this conversation around who am I exposed to? If I am not exposed to difference enough, how do I learn to be empathetic enough when I am exposed to something new? How do I avoid some of the fight-or-flight, in-group, out-group, reptile brain components and embrace some higher order thinking. All those things really come to mind coming out of my trip down to Philadelphia. Great stuff, Mike. Glad you got down there to get some perspective. Any other takeaways about AI and education? I know it's a topic that we'll continue to track through the summer. Just that I'm struck by the different metaphors for artificial intelligence that are out there. I've heard it likened to the internet back in the 90s. I've likened it to... Gutenberg and the printing press. I've also recently been thinking about it a little bit more like the Model T, where suddenly everybody had a mass-produced generic version of artificial intelligence, just like they did with the Model T cars when the mass market really emerged for this stuff, which is certainly happening now with OpenAI. The metaphor that I've been gravitating to a little bit more lately is a personal one. I do have a four-year-old who has been tooling around Brooklyn pretty wonderfully with his training wheels on until this past weekend we headed up to the bike shop and took the training wheels off. But it did make me think about how, just like the training wheels, these generative AI tools, they're helping us get further faster, but are they becoming a bit of a crutch? Are they becoming something that may ultimately limit our ability to fully embrace our humanity? When we offload something, we lose the ability to do it over time. This reminds me of what I refer to as GPS blindness, which many of us are developing chronic cases of, as we always have access to GPS to tell us 
how to get around, where to go. Frequently, that can limit your ability to actually understand where you are and understand more broadly what are some of your options in terms of navigating. So I think there's a risk, just like with the training wheels, that you become dependent on the crutch and that ultimately you forget that the goal, in addition to getting better when they're on, is to continue to get better when they're off. So I think there will need to be more focused thought about when do I turn on the crutch? When do I turn it off? When do I turn on the GPS? When do I learn to navigate on my own? Just because AI can do some of the mundane, grinded out kind of things, does that mean we should give all of that up? If so, where do we learn grit? Where do we learn focus and resilience? They'll always be hard work, I would think. You know, it reminds me also of the Amazon analogy where in the warehouse, it's hard to find the robots who can pick up and pack all the interesting oddities that are part of a typical shipment. That's where humans really blend in with the AI. And those tasks are not particularly high level. They are a little bit kludgy. And that's kind of where I think we are today. I feel like the training wheels are first getting put on. Everyone's raving about how amazing the training wheels are. And ultimately, we may get around better with these new tools. But the underlying question to me is what's happening to our brains? What's happening to our own skills and capabilities? And are they somehow impaired long term? The jury's out, but it's definitely something for us to look critically at, even as we offload and take advantage of those things. I will also report back as my son ramps up and learns how to ride his bike, because you might just be catching me at an anti-training wheel moment because it does get harder before it gets easier again. And perhaps there's some lessons to be learned there as well. Wow, that was a veritable smorgasbord of AI metaphors. I wonder which ones will prevail. This reminds me of the mind as computer metaphor that underpins much of cognitive psychology. Like any metaphor, it helps with understanding but it is also incorrect. If you extend mind as computer to the current state of play, suddenly things get crowded. Humans and AI are in competition. It will be important to figure out new metaphors for the human as well as for the symbiosis between humans and machines. We are entering a new era which will require new models and mindsets. Yes, indeed. One other analogy metaphor out there that I think is interesting is to analogize the current state of generative AI with the dawn of Napster in the early 21st century, where at first everyone had it and it was amazing and the access was unbelievable. Folks had their own 24-7 DJ through shared drives and all the wonder there. That has really evolved. That time has changed and things have become much more proprietary, owned by big tech players in many cases. I do wonder whether we are in a phase where this stuff is open access, but over time, will the regulation come to bear on the industry or will it be a place where different data sets and custom language models are available to us and available to enterprises so that we have to make choices as consumers, as learners, as educators, as far as which technologies we want to bring to bear to augment our human intelligence with artificial intelligence. It's going to be a complicated state of play. It was interesting how much fear I saw out there at the conference this past week. Folks are concerned. And I think there is also a genuine fear that other people know better than me. It's not time for me to act stupid. It's not time for me to 
own that I don't have all the answers. Instead, I got to kind of puff myself up and act as though I am a thought leader. This is also where some of the human vulnerabilities and biases come into play. How do we find the signal in all of that noise? I'm not sure, but it's definitely something we're going to be trying to do in future episodes. There'll continue to be plenty of programming talking about artificial intelligence. Got a few of those shows already teed up for the rest of the summer. The last thing I wanted to talk about was that this is, in fact, another summer of climate, another summer of sustainability. It did bring me back to my recent conversation with friend of the show, Brian Alexander, who wrote his book, Universities on Fire, about possible futures for higher education that might be influenced by climate change and by some of the crises that we've been facing. It's interesting to have these conversations in the abstract and then come around to conversations that really feel very real after the month of June in New York and Brooklyn here, where we really did see more smoke in the air and more concern around just feeling safe outside again. One of the real silver linings of the pandemic, at least around here, was that I felt generally safe when I was outdoors. And now to feel unsafe when I'm outside is a new type of crisis to manage. We know it is a VUCA world. We know things continue to get crazy. Let's listen to a few minutes here of Brian Alexander talking about some possible futures, some aspects of sci-fi and climate fiction that are useful for us when we try to be prepared for the scenarios that might be on the horizon. Climate fiction is an interesting field. This is the field of literature which examines the future of humanity under the impact of climate change. And I would argue it's all science fiction. It's not often marketed that way or discussed that way, but I think it's pretty clear. And it's a current phenomenon. We have a lot of books, some movies, some computer games, some TV shows, some art for the past decade or 20 years. You can find antecedents going back a ways, and people have always written about nature, for example. In the 1960s, when the modern environmental movement took off, there was a lot of fiction about that, including some very powerful science fiction like Jake Ballard's Jowled World or John Brunner's A Sheep Look Up. The Foundation series moved very much towards Gaia and some of those more eco-oriented themes uh -huh. towards its conclusion as well. Yeah. Uh, David Brin has a novel called Earth, where Gaia actually kind of comes to life. So there's a tradition of that. And we could dive into some, you know, different examples. One of the ones that I find most rewarding is Kim Stanley Robinson's A Ministry for the Future, which is an optimistic look at how we might handle the climate crisis for the next 30 years. Mm. Very, very rich, interesting book. So then Apple TV just started out with extrapolations. And this is written by the same person who wrote the movie Contagion. If you haven't seen it, I strongly recommend it to all of your listeners. It's from about 2012 or so. And it's eerie to watch now just because of the way it anticipates a very COVID-like pandemic. Mm -hmm. So the same writer has come up with this new series called Extrapolations. And from what I can tell, only three episodes have come out. Extrapolations looks at the next generation or so. The first episodes have been in the 2030s and the 2040s. And the focus is on how climate change alters the world and humanity. Mm -hmm. First episode took us through a bunch of different characters running around. And I think the year 2036, we saw characters trying to set up a casino in the North Pole, people trying to negotiate the next Congress, the parties, the COP agreements in Israel. We saw bushfires. We saw all kinds of problems. Then the second and third episodes each took a deep dive into one story. 
but with one anchor character. The second episode focused on a whale specialist, a cetologist, trying to preserve the life of what may be the world's last whale. Mm. Uh, third episode focuses on a rabbi in Miami. When Miami is being slowly subsumed, but steadily subsumed by the waves, its population is down to something like 800,000. The chunks of the city are just written off. Wow. And the second episode is very elegiac, very mournful. Mm. Uh, the episode is more crackling comedy with a fierce ethical component to it. I think it's just more interesting as an effort to try to imagine what the climate crisis might do. And that's just a taste of what's in my conversation with Brian Alexander. I'll include links to all of the episodes referenced in today's conversation, the ones in which we picked up some clips. Hopefully, if you enjoyed a taste, you'll come back for the whole meal, so to speak. As we're wrapping up here, I will say, based on the conversation that I was having with Brian there, I think there's a new phenomenon happening, which I would call speculative fatigue or sci-fi fatigue, overall perhaps trauma fatigue, where I used to love Black Mirror. Even as recently as 2019, I looked forward to exploring dark scenarios about what else might happen in the future. I'd say by now, the darkness of those scenarios is in some ways mirrored by my own lived experience in these crazy times. And that's where I'm looking for something different. I'm looking for something new. It was interesting when Brian talked about an optimistic take on how, for example, AI might be able to help in the environmental problems. It does remind me how industrialization in a lot of ways helped to address some of the food security problems and the problems around drinkable water. All those things required science, innovation, technology in order to solve those problems. Clearly, some of those things around industrialization have caused subsequent problems that we're now forced to deal with. But there is a just-in-time element to technology innovation and how humans have been able to leverage it to solve big problems. I think the question always comes back to what is going to be the mix between the humanity and the human skills, the human mindsets that are needed in order to solve big problems, and then how that intersects with new and emerging technology. Perhaps the chief among those emerging technologies is AI. Fortunately, we'll have virtual friends and real ones in subsequent episodes to help us navigate all of this. Thanks again to my virtual co-hosts, Ruth and Nancy, who were able to join me on today's show. Certainly made it more interesting in a number of ways. Thanks to both of you. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks, Mike. And to our listeners, hopefully you enjoyed what you heard. If you did, remember to subscribe, write us a review, do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education. <music>